You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Howard Hughes was born on Christmas Eve, I believe, 1905. And this is a guy who lived an unbelievably interesting life. By the time that he was 18, his father, who had founded a tool company that had become very profitable and valuable, passed away, leaving an 18-year-old Howard Hughes responsible for it, becoming a millionaire at the age of 18. He then took that company and continued to see it grow and grow and grow until he sold it as a multi-billion dollar industry. And so now this young Howard Hughes has more money than he could possibly imagine. And so he starts to put it to work in his next few endeavors. He goes on to direct multiple movies, one of which was the highest costly movie. That's a really bad sentence. A movie that cost more than any other movie had ever cost before at that point. But he wasn't just satisfied there. He would go on to start an aviation company where he would build and and, and construct planes, where he would set the world record on flying around the world in the shortest amount of time, where he would create a giant plane called the Spruce Goose that was basically going to be the Titanic of the sky, which, you know, in hindsight wasn't great. So it's probably good that it only flew for one mile and then they realized it wasn't going to work. But then he would go on to found a medical company that would have great advancements in biology and medicine. A guy who literally everything he put his hand to seemed to be just turning to gold. But as his life progressed, Howard Hughes started spending a lot of time in the penthouse of a hotel. So much time that all the relationships that he used to have began to fall apart. He was at one point in time a man who had women in his life constantly, people around him all the time. He began to grow quite reclusive to the point where the hotel was going to kick him out of the penthouse. And so he said, you know what? I'll just have it. And he bought the whole hotel just so we could have this place to stay. And he began to grow depressed, paranoid, obsessive. He became emaciated stopped taking care of himself, his behavior became erratic, and as time went on, less and less and less, he would leave this little prison that he had created for himself. And when Howard Hughes died, he was a shell of what he used to be. All the accomplishments were still there. All the money was still there. His name had value and it had meaning. His movies still exist. His airplanes were still flying across the sky. Medical research was still being done in his name, but none of it meant anything to him anymore. It was a life of accomplishments that ended in desperate loneliness. And this is such an interesting story because all of his ambition paid off. Everything he wanted to accomplish, he did. And by the end of it, none of it brought him any joy at all. And he died feeling empty and miserable. What an overwhelming thought that you could have incredibly high ambitions. 
You could set goals for yourself, noble goals, worthy goals, admirable goals. And you could accomplish every single ambition that you've set out for yourself in this life and still find no meaning, no value, no purpose, and still leave this life empty. See, while Howard Hughes might be an extreme example of this, This is something that all of us at some point in time realize is a reality of this life. That these things that we put our hope and our attention and our time into because we think they're going to give us satisfaction, we think they're going to help us find purpose and value and meaning, these ambitions, even though at times they may seem noble and good, are incapable of providing what we think we need. And this is something that the writer of Ecclesiastes was very familiar with too. And so we're going to look this morning at how you can live a full life and still live a meaningless life and turn our hearts and our attention to the only place that can provide real satisfaction and meaning. And that comes in Christ Jesus. But let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And pick up where we left off last week. The teacher says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of our life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in the darkness. And yet I perceived that same events happen to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. 
seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, These 17 verses are certainly not very uplifting. But they do remind us of a very bitter reality that we often try to ignore and neglect. That this world has nothing that can truly satisfy us. And so I just want to pray now, however we may be coming to this passage of Scripture today, may be filled with hope and optimism anticipation and eagerness, ambition, or just beaten down by seeing our ambitions fall to nothing or even seeing them fulfilled and realizing that they have nothing to offer on the other side. However we may be coming today, help us to sit with the teacher in the despair. But God, help us not to stay there, but to point our hearts directly to Christ where we can find meaning and hope in all the things that you have created for us. And so we do thank you for your word, even when it's hard, even when it's sad. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not just to keep riding on the theme of sad people, but you know we're going to ride on the theme of sad people for a minute. Because did you know, and maybe you did, I remember when this came out some 20 years ago now, but did you know that you can buy Kurt Cobain's diaries as a coffee table book? Now, it's certainly not a very enlightening book to put on your coffee table, but you could. And I remember, I've never been the biggest as a child of the 90s, still not a very big Nirvana fan for the most part. But when this came out, there was something really intriguing for me as a 16 or 17 year old. I wanted to see what was going on in his mind. And that's a really weird practice that we have, right? The whole posthumous diaries being published, where you go in and you find either diaries or journals or letters written by people, something that's not meant for public consumption, something that was never meant to be publicized or or put on display. It feels like a deep invasion of privacy, but once you're gone, I mean, what can you really do about it? And then I start thinking about this. Now, I imagine that there is no situation in which anyone after I'm gone will have any desire to go through my sermon notebooks or my journals or all of these kind of private things or text messages or whatever. I imagine I'll never have that kind of clout or influence. But still, as I'm writing in my journal from day to day, I think, ugh, what if somebody reads this? And I have this self-conscious thing where I'm almost writing for an audience that will never exist because this is a reality. People get in your business, and especially if you have any sort of fame or notoriety, there's a chance that the things that you've tried to hold very private might get out. And I, when I write, I just, what happens inside my head, my monologue in here that just is me talking to me is weird. (laughs) And it's something that I just don't know that anyone could even follow. But if you were to read through my journals, you think this is a very strange, now maybe you don't have to read through my journals to find out that I'm a very strange person. But regardless of that fact, sometimes I write things down, I think, man, I hope nobody thinks that I'm just this weird on a regular basis because I certainly do. 
And that inner monologue is something that we just kind of process through, right? Journaling helps you to maybe test run some things before you actually put them on display to the world and get the wording right and help to shape our image a little bit. And Ecclesiastes chapter 2 I feel some commonality here with the writer because this feels like he's just trying to work through some things. And this feels like an inner monologue that just accidentally got out. And as I was reading through that passage, I just thought, is this really something that he intended for just everybody to know about him as he was thinking through just the meaninglessness of life? But the reality is he was performing this, right? That's the whole idea with this kohalef, this teacher, this public speaker. He was putting all of these things out on display and laying bare these deep, dark things that are happening inside of his mind as he's trying to understand how life works. And remember, as we closed out last week, we looked at just the desperate, bleak picture that the teacher had about life in general, that everything is meaningless, nothing makes sense. It's all just a big waste of time because the more we find out about the world, the more disappointing it is, the more we're going to have heartache, the more we're going to have brokenness, because the more you dig, the more you find that there's just more filth and more filth and more filth and more trash, and none of it is worth anything. And so it makes sense that the writer of the teacher here in Ecclesiastes would have this kind of response. Look at how chapter two begins. Again, transitioning there, because there's no chapter breaks in the way this was originally written. Let's just look at verse 18 of chapter one and go right into the next verse. He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Then comes the inner monologue. So he says, you know what? I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This is a picture of a man who has realized that nothing matters. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter how I act. It doesn't matter how I conduct myself. As we get deeper into this passage of scripture, he starts to realize, you know what? I can be as wise as I want, as accomplished as I want, and I'm going to die just like everybody else. And so if that's how all of this is working, who cares? And so he says to himself, hey, you know what? You might as well be here for a good time if it's not going to be a meaningful time. I'm going to test my heart with pleasure. I'm just going to invest in all the things that bring me joy, all the things that bring me happiness, even if it's fleeting, even if it's meaningless. I'm just going to see if I can create some sort of meaning in my life. And maybe, maybe you felt this way before. Maybe you've scribbled something like that down in your journal. Maybe you've thought that in your mind. Maybe you've tried to do things the right way, and found nothing as a result. Maybe you've tried to live your life with integrity. Maybe you've tried to conduct yourself in a way that is honorable and meaningful. Maybe you've tried to set goals. Maybe you've had ambitions. Maybe you've had expectations and hopes, and you've tried to reach those things and accomplish those things, only to find on the other side of it, there's just more meaninglessness, more emptiness. It feels like nothing that you do matters and nothing makes sense. So you sit back and you think, well, if none of this is going to accomplish anything at all, why do I care? Why do I care about my relationships? Why do I care about how I conduct myself and my job? Why do I care about living my life a certain way? If none of this matters, if it's all going to turn out to be empty on the other side, why don't I just try to get what I want out of life and just get out here as fulfilled as I possibly can? Well, we have an ally here in the preacher. And not only 
did he say these things? Not only did he think these things, not only did he scribble them down in his journal, but he did them. He said, you know what? I'm going to test and see what happens if I just give myself everything I want. And that's what we see play out over the next nine verses. Because he tried to find meaning and fulfillment in all the different places that the world claims to be able to offer it. Right off the bat, he just says, I'm going to fill my heart with pleasure and this idea of laughter. And so he tries to find meaning in happiness. He tries to find meaning in just doing whatever he can to make himself happy. He thinks maybe I could just craft or manufacture some sort of meaning if I just make myself as happy as possible. I'm just going to live, laugh, love, and fake it until I make it. And I think that's probably the way that a lot of people are existing right now because it's been a hard couple years for most of the entire world. And so we can just hop on social media, right, and try to create happiness. There may be brokenness in your relationship. There may be bad things going on at your job. Life may not be a really fun experience for you right now, but you can go on in the the soon-to-be metaverse. You'll even be able to give an avatar to yourself and make your avatar happy. But right now, you can make your social media presence look very happy and fulfilled. And so we can try to do this thing where we just fake meaning and fake happiness. And the teacher tries that first. But he doesn't just stop there, right? As we get into verse two, he tried to find meaning in wine. He says, I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched my heart to cheer my body with wine. And this idea of using a substance to try to mask the hopelessness and the meaninglessness that he had. And we can even extend that to any sort of physical sustenance or any sort of substance. Maybe if I can just eat this or take this and it'll change the way that I feel, then maybe I won't notice how bad life is. And maybe then I'll find meaning. In verse four through six, in the beginning of verse eight, we see him try to find value and meaning in accomplishments and riches. He says, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from the water to which water the forests of growing trees. In verse 8, he says, I gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He says, you know what? Maybe I can build my own meaning. Maybe if I live my life in a way that gives me great riches, And then I can build houses and monuments to myself. I can fill those houses with all the pleasures of life and make myself as comfortable as possible. If I can have these vineyards, if I can have these pools, if I can create for myself a little oasis in this world, then maybe I'll have meaning and I can just build it for myself. He tries to find meaning in power. This is kind of the old-fashioned supervillain approach, right? It says in verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and have slaves which were born into my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any other who had been before me in Jerusalem. In verse 9, he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Now he's saying, listen, if I can't just manufacture it, maybe I can overpower it. Maybe I can become so powerful that I'll be the one who gets to decide what is meaningful. And so he creates for himself this kind of empire to be able to fill that void in his life. Then he tries to find it in pleasure. In verse 8 and in verse 10, 
He says, I also gather for myself silver and gold and all the treasure of kings and provinces. He said, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. In verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. He says, all right, I'm going to fill my life with just the things that bring me pleasure. If my body or mind or eyes desire something, I'm going to give it to myself. I'm going to surround my life with music. I'm going to fill my life with concubines and prostitutes, and I'm going to have sexual gratification, all the desires that I have, all the things that I want. I'm going to buy them for myself. I'm going to bring it in. I'm going to take it, and I am just going to reserve nothing from myself, but just live this hedonistic lifestyle. And then the overarching theme here is that he also, while he was doing all of this, was still searching for meaning in wisdom. Still, time and time again, he comes back to, I still have my wisdom. I still have my wisdom. So even if all these things fail, maybe I can just outthink the meaninglessness and the brokenness of this world. Maybe it's all in enlightenment. Maybe it's just that I think, therefore, I have meaning and purpose and value. And so here we have this man going to the full reaches of everything the world could offer, saying, hey, I will take anything in this that will give me some kind of meaning and value and purpose. I am going to go full scavenger and try to just figure out how can I make the meaninglessness of this life have meaning. Everything he wanted, he had. Every ambition that he set for himself, he completed. Any desire that he felt, he fulfilled it. And how did he feel about it? Let's go to verse 17. In his summation of the whole deal. So I hated my life. (laughs) Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What a heartbreaking summary. He said, I did all these things. I accomplished all these things. I felt all of these things. I looked for meaning everywhere. And now I hate life. I added a pronoun there that's not there. I said, I hate my life. No, he just says, I hate life. The entirety of it, not just his personally, but the entirety of life. He says, nope, I hate all of this because none of this is satisfying. All of it is sorrow and all of it is meaningless. In fact, I would say he's in a much worse place now than when he started. Because if you have ambitions, if you have goals, if you have some blanks to fill in in your life, then we can assign some sort of hope to those, right? If maybe things feel meaningless now, we can just say, okay, well, it's because, it's because I, I don't have a lot of money. If I just had money, then I would find meaning. It's because I don't have the job that I want or the education that I want. If I just had that job or that education, then I would find meaning. It's because I don't have the relationships. It's because I don't have the pleasures that the rest of this world is, is taking in all the time. If I just had these things, then I would find meaning. And so then at least we have some hope, Right? But now he accomplishes all those things and there's nothing left to hope in. All of it has failed him. All of it has let him down. All of it has shown itself to be nothing. All the hype, all the effort, all the expectations, and now everything is just the same. And it makes him so sad. 
I can't imagine that kind of letdown. Actually, no, I can. And I imagine you probably can too. Maybe not on such a grand scale, but every single one of us has had some sort of ambition, some sort of hope, some sort of thing that we've wrapped our identity up in and then we've taken a hold of it and realized it's just as empty as the feeling we had before we accomplished it. In his book, On the Road with St. Augustine, James K. Smith identifies the problem here. He says, the heart's hunger is infinite which is why it will ultimately be disappointed with anything merely finite. Humans are those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never stops us from trying. And that's the problem, right? We can never be satisfied, but we also never stop trying. And it puts us in this pattern of meaninglessness, false hope, total letdown, and then starting the cycle all over again. And again, maybe this is very familiar to you, this kind of hunger for something that can never satisfy. Maybe you have experienced that kind of disappointment. Maybe you've experienced it more often than you care to share because you thought, if I just had blank... If I just had this, everything will matter. If I could just accomplish this, if I could just buy this, if I could just afford this, if I could just do this thing, then I'll finally have meaning and you accomplish it and there's no meaning there to be found. Maybe you're on the other side of this. Maybe you're on the front end of thinking. If I can just do this thing, if I can just check this box, if I can just accomplish this task, if I can just earn this amount of money, if I can just work my way up to this position in my job, if I could just marry this person, if I could just have this kind of family, you can fill in the blank with whatever it is. You say, I can just do this, then I'll find meaning not to be a wet blanket this morning, but I mean, it's already been kind of a sad thing. Actually, so last week I got home, right? And the girls stayed home because Lucy had been sick all week and Josie had some congestion stuff. So Stephanie just kept both girls at the house and they watched church on Facebook and we're talking about the sermon, and Josie was telling me about some of the notes she took, and she said, but I really, I don't like Ecclesiastes, because it makes me sad. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's the point. So again, we're just going to be wet blanket all over the place here, but not to break your dreams so early, but you can search for meaning in those things, but you're not going to find it, because they are incapable of providing meaning, purpose, and value to you. Again, we can never be fully satisfied by anything created because that's not the purpose of anything created. Your job can't fulfill you. Your marriage can't fulfill you. Your children can't fulfill you. Your happiness can't fulfill you. Your bank account can't fulfill you. None of these things can give you fulfillment, meaning, and satisfaction because they are incapable of doing that. So what do we do? Where do we find meaning? Again, the question always kind of comes back to, do we just become sad, nihilistic people? Let's look at verse 24 through 26 before we jump away from Ecclesiastes for a moment. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The teacher here says that everything is meaningless unless God is in it. I want to look at another case study. As we've looked at people like Howard Hughes and now the teacher who have sought for meaning and value in all the places the world has to offer, I want to look at the example of Paul. Paul writes a little bit of his story here in Philippians chapter 3. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So right there, he's given us this idea of if there's something to boast in, if there's something to brag about, if there is an accomplishment to be measured, I've done it. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As to the law of Pharisee, boom. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, double check. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul right there says, listen, everything I want, everything I need, everything I've tried to accomplish, I've done it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. From a very young age, Paul set his mind to his ambitions. He knew the path he wanted to take. He knew the marks he had to accomplish. He knew everything that he needed to do. And year after year after year, he just checked, check, 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 check. He was a young man who was rising up in the, the hierarchy of the religious authority. He was on track to probably be over most of it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a righteous man. He had lived his life in a very self-righteous way so that he could stand in front of everyone and say, I've done it all. I've accomplished it all. And yet, even having all of that, began to realize that it was meaningless. And then he met Jesus. He met the resurrected Christ. And he looked at all that he had, everything he had accomplished, everything that he had done, every ambition that he had satisfied, and he said, they are rubbish. They're garbage. They're meaningless. But Christ, Christ is the treasure worthy of possessing. Because I tried to find righteousness in my own, but where I really found righteousness was in the righteousness that comes through Jesus. I tried to fulfill the law, but where I really found my value and my purpose was in knowing Christ. And that came through faith by grace. And now I know him in the power of his resurrection. And what I love about this is that after meeting Jesus, Paul's life didn't stop. He didn't join a monastery. He didn't cloister himself up in a cave somewhere because all he needed was just to read the Bible, maybe eat some fruit. 
In fact, Paul didn't even lose his ambitions. But they just changed. And now in the life of Paul, everything had meaning because he knew Christ Jesus. And we see this if we keep moving past Philippians 3, when we get to that passage in Philippians 4 that we quote all the time, the I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've already referenced it as we've looked at Ecclesiastes. Paul says, I've, got, I've had times where I've got money, where I've got nothing. I've got times where I've been free and in prison, where I've been sick and when I've been healthy. And I can do all of those things through Christ who gives me strength. No matter what the season, no matter what's happening, it all has meaning, it all has value, it all has purpose, it all has design, not because those things were giving him value. It wasn't that Paul's suffering on its own gave him value and meaning, or his successes on his own gave him value or meaning, or his righteousness on his own gave him value and meaning, but he had Jesus, and Jesus made his identity secure, made his value complete, gave him meaning in everything, and so Paul was able to look at all of those seasons and situations in life and say, they have meaning because Christ is in it. See, if a job is your hope of salvation and security and meaning and value, you'll never find it. If it's your marriage, if it's your kids, if it's your bank account, if it's your social footprint, if it's your fame, if it's your power, any of these things, they're never going to bring that satisfaction. But what happens when we start to look at Jesus as the place where we find meaning, value, purpose, and satisfaction, all of a sudden these other areas of our life begin to find their right place in our solar system. They find their orbit around Christ and all of a sudden they have meaning. Because of Jesus, our marriages can have deep, meaningful purpose and can bring a level of satisfaction into our lives because they're rooted in Christ. Our children can do the same thing. Your job can do the same thing. Jesus can take a job that you love or a job that you hate and show you how it has meaning in the orbit of everything that's going on because he equips you for the purpose of ministry and mission in that place. Whether you've got an empty bank account or multiple bank accounts just filled and brimming with money, Jesus can show you where the meaning is in those things. He takes the meaningless ambitions of the world and puts them in their proper place so that we can find meaning in everything. We need to stop chasing after the wind, trying to satisfy hungers that can never be met, trying to fill pools that have a hole in the bottom and are just draining constantly. Stop trying to mask the meaninglessness of this world. Stop trying to cover over it with substances. Stop trying to fill it up with building up our buildings and all of the things that we can imagine. Stop trying to overpower it with just being an authority presence in our lives. Stop trying to just outweigh it with the pleasures that we fill up. Stop trying to outthink it and just lay all of these things at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I've got my mess. I've got my meaninglessness and I'm giving it to you and I'm making you my ambition. And wherever you lead, I'll follow. Wherever you send me, I'll go. Whatever you give me, I will rejoice in that. Just a little personal testimony about this. This is something I feel like we've learned kind of well over the last few weeks. We've had a weird few weeks. It's been kind of crummy, to be honest. I mean, I know people have had worse three or four weeks. We went from being sick 
to then some more sickness. Our house flooded. We've had all kinds of issues with my car. We have one car for a significant period of time, trying to also manage working. We've had a lot of things going on kind of outside in our orbit of in the people's lives around us that we've had to kind of help navigate. It's just been a really exhausting season. And one of the things that we, again, going through Ecclesiastes, I think has kind of <laughs> narrowed this in. What a timely passage of Scripture and as we've been going through some of these things that we've been trying to ask, why is this happening? Why is this going on? What are, what's the purpose of all of this? I really wanted to make sure that we were looking for the beauty where it came. And so this is not something I'm necessarily good at. It's something I've learned from, from some of you here about just vocalizing the beauty, vocalizing the blessings, even in the midst of hardships. And what's been amazing is we've been able to kind of show the girls that even though at times life may be hard, it's never bad when Christ is the center. When life is difficult, even when life hurts, there's still meaning, there's still value, there's still purpose. And while the writer of Ecclesiastes falls to this desperate feeling of I hated life, Paul says it's all gain. It's all Christ. It all has meaning. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul went through unbelievable hardships and was writing to churches in Philippians saying, rejoice always. Paul was sitting in prison singing songs of gladness and joy as Paul was marching toward his own death, not because of anything bad he had done, but because of the persecution of the world around him. As he was facing insurmountable, devastating hardships, life was hard, but it wasn't bad because he had Christ. And that's where he found his meaning. That's where he found his hope. That's where he found his joy. And we can too. And so let's turn our ambitions to Jesus. Let's put our hope in the Christ who will never fail us and never let us down. And learn to see the world and even the hardest places in the world through the lens of the gospel and the reminder that Christ is making all things new that he has a plan, a purpose, and a design for each one of us, for our works, for our ambitions, for our struggles, and for our successes. And be the kind of people who can see meaning in what appears to be meaningless. Let's pray.